Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wound Masterclass, Master Series 60 Minutes. Thank you for joining us for the next 60 minutes of Lessons from Space, Lessons for Clinicians in Wound Care. Uh, and we've got some fantastic speakers coming up. Uh, Alan Hargins is a professor of physiology with an interest in space medicine, and he is the previous chief of space physiology at NASA. Um, he has had some extraordinary students that have gone on to become astronauts. Um, and we're really excited to hear about your experience, Prof Hargens. Thank you very much for inviting me today. We've also got joining us Dr. Heather Barnhart, who has a PhD in physical therapy. And Heather has developed an interest in wounds, burns and lymphedema. And she specializes in, in fluid shifts. Heather is going to be talking to us about the application of weightlessness and lower space orbit and its relevance to wound care patients. So we're really excited about that segment coming up. Welcome to the panel, Heather. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here as well. Also joining us, we've got Christine Menner, who is an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at Jacksonville in Florida. And Christine has been a, a real avid researcher and, and published a lot uh, in the area of small devices, studying human cells in the space environment. And Christine, we're really excited to hear more from you on this specialized area too. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. I'm really excited um, to join um, my fellow speakers. And our first speaker is Dr. Danny Carroll, and she's a surgeon who's also a United States Air Force veteran and instructor. And she is going to be talking to us about a really valid point about surgical considerations in space. And I'll be honest, it's been one of these topics where I've also, you know, as a surgeon wondered what happens to patients that have a surgical emergency, but they're in space. Um, how is that managed? So things like appendicitis and general conditions like that. But also, obviously, uh, wound care applications. What about if someone needs a, a wound procedure uh, in space? What happens? So with all the answers to that and more, uh, welcome, Danny. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Danny Carroll, and it is absolutely wonderful to be here. Um, thank you so much for hosting such a wonderful event. I have no relevant financial relationships to disclose, um, and my background is a combination of general surgery, aerospace engineering, military flying, and some tech development. And you'll probably see components of each of these peek through over the course of this presentation. But the bigger picture is that we'll be talking about surgical care in the spaceflight environment. Um, so here's our agenda for the next few minutes. Uh, brief intro, space health overview, and then talk specifically about care of surgical disease in space, and then wrap up. All right, so before we dive in too far, let's pause for a minute and just discuss where we are right now and where we're going. Um, you probably heard of the Artemis program, but I thought a quick graphic might just help to give a sense of the complexity involved at every level of the planning process uh, for a mission of this magnitude, not just on the medical front. Um, this is the uh, rough plan for the Artemis One mission, the uncrewed mission that actually took place last November and passed around the far side of the moon. And here's a, a particularly awesome photo that was taken during the mission, um, but that mission was a great success. And the current plan um, is to put the first woman and the first person of color on the moon in the next couple of years. 
which will mark a return of humans to the lunar surface for the first time since the 1960s. And after that, as many of you are probably aware, we'll be traveling all the way to Mars. Um, timing is still to be determined, but I'm pretty optimistic that it'll be in the next decade or so. And so for the purposes of uh, developing technical and technological capabilities, we really need to think ahead. Um, developing and refining new products and new processes and really vetting them before deployment takes time. And so even though Mars missions appear to be a ways off, time has a way of, of passing by pretty quickly. So we really need to make sure that we're ready. So right now, since the International Space Station is in low Earth orbit, uh, we get to enjoy the many, many benefits of being in you know, Earth's magnetosphere. Um, it's protected from a lot of space hazards and we can get somebody off the ISS and back down to Earth if there's an emergency in the span of about nine hours, which is a pretty quick trip, all things considered. Um, missions to Mars, on the other hand, will require a complete and total shift in paradigm, moving from an augmented and well-supported and resource-rich environment uh, in low Earth orbit to one that requires entirely autonomous operations for really long stretches of time. And so for the rest of this talk, I'm going to focus primarily on preparing for missions to Mars. So no part of this journey will be simple. Um, of course, we know that planetary orientation is really dynamic and the Earth is not only rotating on its own axis, but it's also orbiting the sun and Mars is doing pretty much the exact same thing, uh, which makes it a pretty complicated math problem to figure out uh, when to leave and what the flight path needs to look like in order to make the trip as short as possible. Um, unless we're able to harness a different type of energy, and I'll leave that up to your imagination, um, to speed up the trip, we're looking at probably about 18 months round trip, not including time spent on the, on the surface of Mars. Um, and so for this reason, the first crewed mission to Mars is probably gonna be on the order of between two and a half and three years in duration. And so with that, I wanted to just zoom out for a second and define a few terms. Um, historically, aerospace medicine was a branch of preventative medicine, which by default extended to the subset of space health. And whereas classical medicine that most of us learned um, in medical school has primarily involved the study of abnormal physiology in the normal terrestrial 1G environment, it was traditionally stressed that aerospace medicine dealt with normal physiology, like a perfectly healthy astronaut, for example, but in an abnormal or non-standard environment. And now as opportunities to fly become more and more readily available to a larger swath of people, we're dealing with abnormal physiology in the abnormal environment of space. And this is especially true of commercial spaceflight participants. So unlike typical NASA, ESA, and JAXA astronauts who are screened really rigorously before selection, commercial crews bring with them a litany of medical issues um, that we will just have to deal with. And so with this in mind, we've started asking, you know, is prevention really enough? And I think Spoiler alert, although this probably does not come as a surprise to you all at this point, uh, most of us involved in space health these days would say no, prevention is not enough. Um, but then the question becomes how best to be prepared to really treat the diseases that might arise in space. So in a nutshell, we're looking at how to prevent illness, how to treat disease, and how to optimize crew health and performance in the spaceflight environment. And listed on this slide are 14 of the highest priorities topics in space health at the moment. Uh, they're complex, multifactorial, and they're absolutely interrelated. And needless to say, the larger space medicine community is still working really hard on figuring out how to keep astronauts not just alive, but also healthy, happy, and productive on longer and longer duration missions to the moon and Mars. And it's important to recognize that while as physicians, we see this when we think of human spaceflight, 
most engineers see this. And with all the mass, power, and volume considerations that are involved in putting together missions of this magnitude, it's a tough sell to bring a really robust medical suite's worth of supplies. Um, instead, we have to be very judicious about how to approach medical care in the most austere setting imaginable and really keep the goal at the forefront, which is to buy down risk through the just the right amount of medical preparedness. So what's our starting point and what medical capabilities do we already have? Um, so over the course of the last 60 plus years of human spaceflight, as mission duration and complexity have increased, in-flight medical capabilities have done the same. Um, from a simple pack with antiemetics and decongestants for mercury missions on the left-hand side of the screen, uh, back in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, to, as you see here, moving across to the right, incremental improvements over Gem Gemini, Apollo, and shuttle era missions, and then ultimately to the shift from medical kit to medical system that we've seen in the last couple of decades of the ISS. And you might notice though that something is missing over all of these. Um, so surgical disease until very recently just hasn't been part of the planning process. And we're glad that that's been changing. So getting back to medical risk, how the greater space medicine community buys down risk specifically is to plan for it. Um, NASA's original integrated medical model outlines the 100 medical conditions that are most likely to develop in flight on a mission in low Earth orbit, you know, so on the ISS, and a revised version that's tailored to the exploration class setting is being finalized as we speak, but it will likely have between 120 and 130 conditions total, um, although the core conditions really aren't changing much from what you see here. And keep in mind, you know, these conditions that are listed are just a tiny sliver of the pie of medical conditions that somebody could potentially develop, and we know this as physicians who spend four years in med school, plus a handful in residency, learning to treat lots and lots of different conditions. Um, but given the specific nuances of the spaceflight setting, these are the conditions that are collectively believed to be most likely to arise. And regardless, looking closely at these 100 conditions above, over a quarter of them may need procedural or surgical intervention. And pretty much any of these interventions would require wound healing related considerations, which is why we're having this discussion in this forum today. Um, and interestingly, even though the need for a surgical contingency plan was outlined back in 2014 in the Institute of Medicine Review, and then in the 2015 NASA Space Technology Roadmap, these needs still have not been fully satisfied. So with that, let's pause for a second and just talk through a case scenario here. We have a 40-year-old gentleman who develops a fever and right lower quadrant pain seven months into a two and a half year mission to Mars. He is diagnosed via ultrasound with perforated appendicitis. And as is probably not unexpected, uh, mission abort and evacuation are not possible. Uh, his appendicitis is managed medically with antibiotics, but his uh, perforation results in development of a six centimeter intra-abdominal abscess. The pain and fever continue as source control uh, is difficult to achieve, unfortunately. And then the question becomes what to do next. So we'll pause there and come back. In speaking of surgical risk, there's about a 27% chance of at least one surgical event uh, arising over a uh, among a six member crew over a three year mission to Mars. And by surgical event, we mean a medical event for which the terrestrial standard of care would normally be surgery. And real-time communication with terrestrial resources uh, to include robotic telesurgery probably won't be an option because time delays regularly exceed 20 minutes in that context. And to put it in perspective, 
in terrestrial telesurgery studies, a time delay or a latency of as little as 150 milliseconds was considered disruptive. So even the 1.5 second latency between Earth and the moon will probably prohibit reliable telesurgical capabilities. And it's important to note at this current stage, nobody is really proposing a pop-up operating room on an exploration class spacecraft. I think most folks here would agree that the logistics, the mass power and volume constraints, and the overall potential benefit really don't support such an approach in the very near term. But what we're suggesting instead is a creative and innovative program that provides a means of performing interventional medicine. So invasive procedures, be they surgical or non-surgical, to really promote optimal crew health in the ways that are necessary and are most advantageous. And keep in mind, the most common surgical illnesses in an otherwise healthy patient population are acute appendicitis and acute cholecystitis. And there's an ongoing debate about the risk-benefit profile of prophylactic appendectomies, but even if we were to adopt such a policy like our Kiwi colleagues, we still do need to be able to treat surgical problems as they arise uh, autonomously and with limited materials. So which interventional medical procedures are we even talking about? Using the IMM 100 conditions as a guide, our team has identified a series of procedures that may reasonably need to be performed during a deep space mission. And all procedures that are listed here can actually be performed under local anesthesia, regional block, uh, and or sedation. And in addition to the basic procedures on the previous slide, we identified several that would very likely be feasible, but would require a little additional technology, like an advanced scope or support in the form of image guidance. And if needed, NASA's Robonaut 2 is capable of controlling an ultrasound probe to free up the operator's hands for an interventional procedure. So that's something we can potentially take advantage of in the future. And in order to make the procedures in the right-hand column um, possible in flight, we'll really need a high-resolution, narrow-caliber, multifunction scope, as well as a reliable means of sterilization. You know, this is a really exciting time to be involved in surgery and that surgical technology is really rapidly advancing. And a bunch of items are listed here uh, on this slide, but I wanted to highlight 3D printing of surgical tools specifically. Um, this is a hot topic and it's a subject of a lot of ongoing development. And while some surgical tools are still too complex to be printed using current technology, these capabilities are rapidly advancing. Um, some of you might be aware that a tissue printer has actually been um, brought on board the ISS in the recent past, and this might be useful down the line um, for skin grafting, actually, in the event of a severe burn or something. So back to the case scenario, you know, true surgical capabilities will be developed at some point, but it's still a work in progress. And until we get more people flying regularly, the resources involved in facilitating classical surgical care are a very hard, hard sell on the engineering side. Um, so my sense is that in the near term, we'll be taking more of a temporizing approach to the management of surgical disease and save definitive care for when crews are back on earth. Um, and so in this context, that might look, it might look like placing a percutaneous drain, for example. Um, and as more and more people fly and a greater need for surgical care or for care of surgical pathology on other planetary services arises, I see surgical capabilities expanding to meet the growing mission needs. And something to keep in mind through uh, this entire discussion today is that all of these advancements are beneficial not only in the spaceflight setting, but really also on Earth. Um, it's not just about space. I, I think space can be considered a really phenomenal accelerator for the development of all sorts of technologies. Mm -hmm. 
and we don't get anywhere alone. I've been really fortunate to have tremendous mentors along the way who keep pushing and encouraging and facilitating a whole bunch of collaborative work. So here are a few of them. And some references. And I am more than happy to take questions um, or feel free to follow up with me by email. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, Danny. That was a, a an exciting segment, uh, full of information for the for the audience, uh, and for all of you watching at home, please don't hesitate to ask any questions of our panel. You can just type in the chat any queries you have, um, and we'll get through those questions in the next sixty minutes. Also, if you'd like to ask a video question, feel free. You can select that option, and we'll be more than happy to hear from you. Moving on to our next segment, which will be done by um, Heather Barnhart. Welcome, Heather. Okay, so I'm going to focus a little bit differently on talking about the integration of the systems and how this impacts tissue health and, uh, and fluids in general. And so I, I talk about this concept called the veil, which is really the venous, arterial, integumentary, and lymphatic systems as a collective. You know, in, in traditional schooling, we're kind of taught about these systems in a very siloed approach to really understand the magnitude of the importance of these systems. But what happens is we can't then go treat in a siloed approach. It's not just a cardiovascular issue. Cardiovascular issue. It's not just a musculoskeletal issue. There's, there's this integration or this interrelatedness. And part of that's just due to the fact that anatomically, physiologically, and biochemically, these systems work in unison to maintain homeostasis. So when we have dysfunction in one of these systems, it ultimately can and often leads to dysfunction in some of these other systems, which can either manifest subclinically, so it's really not evident, or it can be quite overt. And so we've been talking about this, this interconnection. And so actually now, <laughs> kind of revised it to include two other systems as well, where we should be maybe referring to it as the valen, because we know the endocrine and neurological systems also can impact tissue health. When we talk about and look at the components of obesity and fat disorders like lymphedema and the incidence of um, oil, which is obesity-induced lymphedema, right? And then also the components of that loss of protective sensation or having alterations to sensation which um, leads to those impairments that are often associated with uh, diabetes mellitus, but also lower extremity neuropathic disease, because we know neuropathy is not exclusive to just patients with diabetes. There's a variety of different patient populations that experience neuropathy. And so when we have these different uh, systems that become impaired, ultimately the skin is the end result that ends up uh, getting uh, and manifesting the man manifestation. And often that's the visual biomarker that tells us there's something wrong in some of these other systems. So the skin is really critically important with all of this. And if we look at applying to the Valen principle to some of the more common conditions out there, when we look at it in the context of chronic venous insufficiency, you know, we might start with vein or valve dysfunction that will ultimately lead to lymphatic hypertension that can lead to a lymphatic dermopathy, which is that connection between the lymphatics and the integumentary. And with all this hypertensive um, environment that's produced between the veins and the lymphatics, it can actually impact arterial inflow. And what ultimately we end up seeing sometimes, not always, but sometimes is integumentary dysfunction that manifests such as a venous ulcer. And we know that lymphatic dermopathy is the connection where when we have lymphatic compromise, it leads to areas of cutaneous 
disruption. So we lose our skin barrier function and they become, these patients become more susceptible to infection, um, other complications, and even carcinogenic changes that we see sometimes in these longstanding chronic wounds. When we apply valin to lymphedema, again, we might start with lymphatic function, but because of the interconnection between the veins and the, art, uh, and the lymphatics, that will ultimately develop into some level of venous impairment, again, leading to that lymphatic dermopathy, potential arterial inflow issues. And we can see that integumentary dysfunction. We know a lot of these patients with chronic longstanding um, lymphedema have significant fibrotic changes, cellulitic infections, um, skin impairments of different origins just related to this interconnection and this dysregulation that happens. Similar with peripheral arterial disease, where the, the ischemia is going to lead to integumentary dysfunction because if the skin isn't getting the nutrients or the oxygen it needs, it's going to break down. That when you then have integumentary dysfunction by proxy, you're gonna have a local lymphatic impairment because those dermal lymphatic capillaries are impaired once that skin um, is, is uh, disrupted. And ultimately that too can then be linked potentially to venous impairment. And then lastly, with the obesity and fat disorders, and this is not an all-inclusive list, but of course, the more common areas we're presenting with, we can see that with obesity or lipohypertrophy, fat disorders, there is an associated lymphatic impairment because of the increased diffusions, its distance, and it actually makes the, the lymphatic vessels a little bit more leaky and, and reduces their contractility. That can then lead to possible possible vascular impairments, and of course, again, that integumentary cascade of that dysregulation and dysfunction. So the take home with all of this is really these systems are interconnected, right? And it's not just one condition that is really um, the should be the center of focus. It's really looking at it in the context of all of these and how there may be impairment within all of those um, areas. So we know body systems developed and evolved under the influence of gravity. So the question really remains, what happens when gravity is removed? And I think that's becoming a really um, salient point with the progression of, or the resurgence, I should say, of wanting um, to, to really focus again more on space exploration and even the astro civilians getting on board with going into space. What is, what is going to happen in a body that may not be as conditioned as say an, as an astronaut? So what we're finding, is one of the first things that is occurring that's visual is this puffy head bird like syndrome, which is a progressive shift of body fluids and blood from the lower extremities to the upper body. And it occurs in the absence of Earth's gravitational force. So essentially it's like the reverse of chronic venous insufficiency. So the fluids get forced up into the, the trunk and into the head, as you can see here. And I believe sometimes this is called moon face, if I'm not mistaken. So, when we're in low earth orbit or beyond, there are a lot of challenges the body experiences. There's weightlessness, of course, which we're not used to. There's vacuum, there's extreme temperatures. There's those initial launch accelerative forces, uh, the weightlessness of being in an orbital plane and velocity, elevated galactic cosmic radiation exposure, circadian disruption, even isolation and confinement are some of the unique conditions encountered when we leave the protective barrier of terra firma. We know the body systems most impacted and studied, I should say, by microgravity are the cardiovascular, the musculoskeletal, bone, metabolic, neurovestibular, and even immunohematological. However, um, 
We know microgravity and space radiation in particular also have a crucial impact on oxidative stress in living organisms. But one of the interesting things is, as you can see in this little diagram, just showing you some of the changes that happen to those studied body systems, kind of what's indirectly implied is the lymphatic involvement, but it's never really formally been studied. Um, at least in, in great depth. So we understand this fluid distribution, but like I said before, it's kind of looked at through the lens of the cardiovascular system. So lots of changes happen and it's our body's method to try to adapt to environment we're not used to. So when we talk about what can be learned in space, it's kind of like the extremes even here on earth. When people go to um, Mount Everest, as Dr. Hargens had stated, or do deep sea diving or Antarctica or all these extreme environments here on terra firma, there's a lot we can learn about human physiology and adaptations also combined with what we're learning in space. So here's an opportunity. We know that on earth, our body fluid compartments are maintained and balanced by that nanoscaled architectural integration of the endothelial glycocalyx layer, which is really an incredibly interesting structure in and of itself and its relationship with the lymphatic system because they work collectively in accord with gravity, respiration, and muscle contraction. So when we have fluid shifts in microgravity, um, though they're currently discussed through the lens of the cardiovascular system, I think we need to start paying attention of actually how it's impacting the lymphatics and thereby also the glycocalyx, because we know that the lymphatics are also lined with this glycocalyx. And because we know that things like space radiation really affect oxidative stress, we can link that back to the glycocalyx. We know the GCX has been linked to numerous pathologies and mechanisms such as vascular permeability, inflammation, atherosclerosis, even diabetes. It's been found to have an anti-thrombotic effect and does play a significant role in, in reducing oxidative stress. So we need to be able to think of ways to keep it restored, prevent it from shedding in space so we're not getting that oxidative stress. We can also note, we also know, excuse me, that the glycocalyx can shed in a, in a, in a response to a variety of stimuli such as inflammation, ischemia reperfusion, sepsis, trauma, even prolonged immobility. So this really highlights the importance of its role in fluid regulation as edema and fluid shifts are evident in all of these situations. So it's a potential, could be a potential key regulator of bodily systems when exposed to microgravity or extremes of environment, given the health challenges and the physiological paradoxes that are experienced by past and current astronauts with respect to fluid shifts and cardiovascular health. So I think there's value in even going back to earlier data and looking at it again through that lens of the lymphatic and glycocalyx. Um, part of what's happening is when we look at this through the lens of the valen concept is the glycocalyx, it can thin or even shed in microgravity due to the loss of permeability and its barrier capacity, but also subsequent load on the lymphatics due to that uh, reduced micro shear of the microvascular. So things are not getting their normal if you will, almost biotensegrity, things are kind of lost and the body's trying to adapt. This is compounded in the glymphatics, which are in, in the brain, which may not function properly in microgravity, definitely an area of further research. And it may contribute to other symptoms and manifestations, potentially such as uh, space flight associated neuroocular neuro syndrome, headaches, even nasal congestion that the astronauts experience. Um, 
part of that puffy head bird-like syndrome. And in the absence of normal 1G environment, our typical muscular and respiratory contractions that support lymphatic and venous flow are disrupted. So that muscle pump, that respiratory uh, um, guidance principle, the, the um, uh, just the diaphragmatic breathing um, can definitely be impacted and subsequently impact the functionality of the lymphatics, particularly in the head, the neck, and in the brain. So these fluid shifts result in an increase also in intraocular pressure. That's something I know that's being looked at as contributing to uh, SANS development, um, as well as morphological alterations in the central nervous system. So, so much to be studied and so much of a call for an opportunity to look at these different things. So until we have a better understanding of the underlying mechanisms of the physiological adaptations and dysregulation that occurs in microgravity, uh, I feel long-term space exploration, colonization, and entrepreneurship is going to be limited. If we can't provide for a healthy living environment um, and sustain physiology, I mean, we're not going to be able to, to go after these components, right? So we need to figure out the medical side of this first to be able to do these, these wonderful things of colonization and, and uh, space entrepreneurship and uh, habitation and things along that line but not at the compromise of, of human physiology. We need to figure that part out. So countermeasures for pre-flight, flight, post-flight can be explored to address the glycocalyx, lymphatic and valin responses when subjected to microgravity and true weightlessness. And I think, again, it's looking at really the whole organism and how all of the systems interplay so that we can come up with a way to safely explore and colonize as we move forward. So I, I always like uh, Stephen Covey. Um, I thought this was a good, <laughs> relevant to our talk today. So we have to figure out, you know, we need to begin with the end in mind. We know what our objective is. Uh, we want to go to Mars. We want to go to the moon. How do we get there and stay there safely from a physiological standpoint? So um, that was my presentation. So thank you for your, for your time. Thank you, Dr. Barnhart, and thank you so much for, for writing us a recent guest editorial, which we'll link in the chat, which was really, we got a lot of engagement from our audience, so we'll link that in because that's relevant to some of the points that you've raised here. Thanks, Dr. Barnhart, for that segment. Are there any questions from the panel for Dr. Barnhart or any comments? Yes, uh, this is Alan Harkins. Thank you very much, Dr. Barnhart, for your nice introduction. I really enjoyed that. I think we can also learn some lessons from animals. Uh, for example, animals that are really tall, like a giraffe. Um, and some of these tall animals have a, are very well adapted to the change in blood pressure. So these animals have very high blood pressure down in their feet. Yeah. Uh, elevated blood pressure at uh, heart level, and then about the same blood pressure we have up in our head. Um, so what we've found is that um, the giraffe has a natural anti-gravity suit, and it helps uh, return the venous blood back to the heart, and it pre uh, prevents swelling or uh, edema Mm -hmm. down in their legs. So I think we can we can learn several lessons from these tall animals. They have a very thick fascia, yes. which is their 
their anti-gravity suit. And if you look at small animals like a mouse or a rat, they don't have any, they don't have much of a fascia uh, at all. So uh, again, I would like to thank Dr. Barnhart for her nice uh, introduction and uh, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Hargan. You know, I, I, I love uh, the, the, the work you've done with various animals, not just giraffes. <laughs> and I think it's telling in that when we go back looking at the skin and how elastic our skin is compared to some of the other animal species out there and the fact that our fascia, again, biotensegrity is so different compared to that. I think there's really something to that. So coming up with a countermeasure or some type of suit, if you will, that can provide that protective barrier so we can offset some of those challenges, I think would be really, really unique. But your work has been fascinating with the various animals you've worked with. It's, it's really, really beautiful work. May I add one more comment? Um, so we think that the astronauts need to have the same loading on their bodies as we do on Earth. For example, uh, I think uh, we heard that the, our most common posture during the day is probably eight to 10 hours of sitting posture. And if you look at astronauts, they never sit down. They never have that uh, load on their body. So we, we have devised uh, a um, countermeasure using lower body negative pressure, which is like a giant suction uh, machine, uh, machine that you can pick objects up off the floor. We put the astronauts into this uh, this uh, chamber, and we can have them sit down at normal body weight, um, as as in our sitting posture on Earth, and then we can have them exercise at normal body weight. Uh, and with a fluid shift down to their feet. Hmm. At present, the exercise devices that are on the space station don't give any um, fluid shift back to the feet, nor, and they only can go up to about 70% of the body weight. And we've been able to go up to 1.4 body weights. Dr. Harkin, we're delighted to hear from you on the magic of physiology and space and the applications to us here on Earth. So as I mentioned, there's a fluid shift up towards the head uh, in space. And then that tends to give a person a chronic but mildly elevated intracranial pressure. And so that's, and, and they have that all of the time. And you can see the what Dr. Barnhart showed as a swollen face. Uh, so that's, that's the most common um, thing that happens right away in space. So the astronauts, sometimes when they go on orbit, they don't recognize each other because their faces are so swollen. Um, so if you have a chronically elevated, but mildly elevated intracranial, pressure, um, you don't get the same 
type of situation you have on earth because every time you lie down, your pressure, your intracranial pressure is about 15 to 17 millimeters of mercury. And then every time that you stand up or maintain upright posture, either sitting position or standing, your intracranial pressure goes way down and that never happens in space. So um, if you can devise a way to um, reproduce that daily shift in the fluid um, and, and have some effect on intracranial pressure, that may solve what's called the SANS uh, that uh, Dr. Barnhart alluded to, which is, uh, it's a vision impairment that the astronauts get. They, they lose their nearsighted vision over time. And uh, right now we, we don't know the exact uh, mechanism uh, of that. So it's difficult to come up with really good countermeasures. And Dr. Menor, have you any comments on uh, the application? Because you've done a lot of research in, in some of these aspects as well. Oh, right, right, right. Um, probably more really on the on the basic cellular level. I think um, you know all these all these components. What my uh, you know what the previous speakers um, highlighted uh, really, I think to me, unfortunately, highlight the common fact that we just don't know yet and that there's so much more research that needs to be done and what's really challenging about this and this is obviously stating the obvious is that at, at any given time even now even with you know now more than one space station up in 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 low earth orbit we only ever have six to 12 people in space and and we all know that studying especially human physiology requires ideally thousands of patients or subjects in order to really understand what is going on because otherwise we're always only going to study a single mechanism that that could may not possibly uh, really have impact uniformly to to all of um, uh, to all humans i think a really important thing that that heather had mentioned is um you know where do we where do we want to go? So one of the, the the big future dreams, of course, is to establish a lunar base to work on the moon to to be there more permanently. And one of the fascinating things I always think about is that um, we all, I guess, are somewhat part of a workforce, and our employers would like us to work for eight or ten or however many hours a day. And yet in space, we always have this this um, situation where somebody needs to go exercise for three or four hours a day. Now we can put them, as um, uh, Alan was saying, we can put them into um, a special pressure suit or chamber, and then they exercise in there. So how? like logically and from a entrepreneurial standpoint, how can we combine this into a work day or is this gonna be their free time? How, how do we even you know, make this something that somebody wants to do and, and, and be their job? So just from a um, bigger picture perspective, and now I'm gonna drill all the way down to the tiny cells, if you will, um, because I think what's really important since we cannot for the moment and probably not for the next i want to say likely you know 10 15 years study a large population in space i do believe um, and that's also you know because of my background that 
we have to study model organisms, either whether that is certain animals, as Alan was highlighting, or I mean, we're probably not going to send a giraffe to space anytime soon, but um, or um, <laughs> uh, too much actually, space. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> or or we might, um, uh, you know, as, as we have done in the past, um, study a, a variety of human cells. And what's really interesting, and I know that we are, and rightfully so, um, focusing on the lymphatic system here. But what's really fascinating is that what we see with the fluid shifts and what the astronauts, all of the astronauts uniformly experience is literally the tip of the iceberg of what's actually happening. As you just brought up, right? Um, there's, there's likely changes to neurodegeneration and how that progresses. There is a certain risk of cancer. There hasn't been a study that showed that there is an increased number, but we've also so far only ever been for long periods of time in lower Earth orbit. The Van Allen belts protect us significantly from um, the, the actual space radiation. And once we go to the moon and once we go beyond, this will drastically change. And being able to really study on a cell cellular level first how radiation and the changes in gravity, whether that is microgravity in free-flying space or the um, gravitational changes on the lunar surface, how that really changes um, the cells. I think that's, that is something that is, even though it's difficult and it's today very difficult, but it is still more feasible than thinking we're gonna have a thousand people in, in space and, and be able to study them all and follow them all. Because I really do agree, not just the space tourists, but also, those um, that will work be there as workers will not be as highly trained and will not be as highly monitored as as current astronauts are. And we see, you know, as I said, on any level in the cells, whether that is um, stem cells, whether that is lymphatics, whether any any organ changes in microgravity and is certainly impacted by radiation. That's a total no-brainer. But um, there is there's a lot that that needs to be explored to make that safe. And the nice thing is, whatever we find, we can always then translate back um, to hopefully significant findings for humans on Earth. Thank you very much, Heather. You've given us great insight into weightlessness and its effect on the on the lower limbs. Now we're going to go over to Dr. Meelan, who is a newly appointed wound care specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And Dr. Meelan is going to be talking to us uh, in depth about low earth habitat uh, and understanding the lymphatic and endothelial glycocalyx. Um, so as usual, any questions, please uh, include that in the chat and we'll come to you as soon as we can. So Dr. Meelan, it's always a pleasure to have you on board and we're really excited to hear about this. Well, thank you. And thank you for hosting this really wonderful space forum. And it's a great opportunity to share what's going on in low earth orbit and uh, some of the great research that's going on. So, you know, as we open up, I just want to applaud all the other speakers that are participating in this. And I, I certainly want to applaud what's going on in the United States, in the European Space Agency, NASA, uh, and, and throughout the world with uh, uh, the Japanese space uh, industry. But a lot of people are working very hard on not just rockets, but also are working hard on how do we understand human adaptive physiology in space. So my title looks, uh, it looks complex, but we're actually going to try to break it down because a lot of this really correlates well into how we think about treating our patients in the wound clinics. So when we talk about fluid shifts, that's all this is, is our fluid shifts going down towards the legs, which we experience in our patients with 
feeble lymphedema and, and regular lymphedema and uh, congestive heart failure, renal failure. But in space, it's a totally different uh, function. I just want to go back and reflect on what happened uh, 50 years ago in May of 1973. That was actually the launch of Skylab. And the very first physician into space was Dr. Joseph Kerman, or Kerwin, I'm sorry. And it, it's, it's really interesting to think about training all this time to be a, to be a physician. And then he got into the uh, into NASA and taking that skill set, you would think would offer a lot of opportunities for advancing human science. And that was his original intent. One of the interesting things about Skylab was they had a misdeployment of one of the solar panels. And when you read uh, Dr. Kerwin's uh, lectures and talking about going to space lab, he said, actually, one of the most difficult things I have ever had to do in my space career was was fix the Skylab. So you can see this gold parafoil that's on top of uh, Skylab. They actually had to jerry rig a device to help uh, protect so it didn't get too hot as it would pass around the sun. Otherwise, inside a Skylab, it got to be incredibly hot. So here, adaptability and then just having to kind of work in the moment and then work as a team because this had to be done between the astronauts on the um, on the station as well as between the crew that were down below to figure out how to make this a suitable environment for research. So when astronauts reach into low Earth orbiter uh, LEO um, and perform extravehicular uh, activities or EVAs, so spacewalks, there's a significant fluid shift from the legs up to the upper torso, head and neck. And this uh, fluid shift is approximately one liter per leg. So a total of two liters reaches into the upper torso and the head and the neck. And of course, if you've ever had a head cold, you know how kind of stuffy your head is. Well, this is a really significant shift that's, um, that for some astronauts, they adapt to it and the fluid shift changes a little bit over the days and weeks in space. For some, it's just a persistence. Some of that may be clearly related to genetics. There's been a lot of work done on the genetic component of this. And then uh, how do you treat these types of things? And then what's the real why? Why does this happen in terms of the shift and why doesn't it go away? If we look to the, um, the SpaceX crew that uh, flew, I think this was about three years ago in 2021, and we have these four, basically, uh, you know, they're they're astronauts that are up there for a short period of time. They're but they're they're actually um, uh, regular civilians, and so they didn't get to go through the two to three years of training that most NASA astronauts get to go through, and so they all experienced this um, this fluid shift to the head and neck. And one of the descriptions was it's just like this pulling of your head, like you've been hanging upside down in your bed. Well, interestingly enough, a space flight analog study would be where we put somebody flat on a bed and then tilt the head down six degrees to get fluid to shift into the head neck. So that's called a space flight analog that simulates what's going on in space. And uh, they went on to say in this interview, but you have to just kind of find a way to ignore it and work through it. About a day or later, it kind of balances out and you don't notice as much. So that's that adaptability component. And here you can see that uh, the Time Magazine cover shows them at their uh, their baseline before flight, and then this flight, this picture over on the right shows what's happening about two days into flight. You can see their foreheads are a little bit full, their faces are a little bit puffy, and this is all that cephalolite fluid shift. So it changes how you uh, it changes your sense of smell, it changes your sense of taste, 
uh, early on in um, uh, NASA, astronauts were actually, were actually salting their food quite heavily just to maintain a taste so they can maintain their appetites. Because if you can't smell and taste, your appetite goes down. You're not taking as much nutrition that can have a, a really significant impact on, um, on your body when you're not getting enough calories. So this fluid shift is really an important part of um, figuring out and mitigating how to change this and adapt within the environment. Because if you can find a way to bring that fluid back down, then you can find back down into the lower extremities. And one of the ways that people will say, well, why can't you just create uh, artificial gravity in space? It's, it's very hard to do that. There's been a lot of work on that. And certainly for long space duration, trying to figure that out, it's gonna be important if you're in this environment for, uh, for months. Dr. Jay Bucky, who's currently at Dartmouth, he flew on um, the space shuttle transport 90, which was called Neurolab. He's a uh, physician. Again, he's done a lot of work on this term weightlessness. So people will talk about microgravity in space, but the true, and I really learned so much from reading his studies, it's, it's the true phrase is weightlessness, because when you're in space, you're basically falling around the earth. That's what creates this sense of, uh, of um, being in micro or less gravity, but it's basically like being in an elevator shaft and just falling straight down continuously forever while you're in space. So what this ultimately does is it creates dramatic changes in venous pressure. And Dr. Bucky, along with Dr. Gaffney, who was a cardiologist at Vanderbilt, were the first ones to do a study where they actually inserted a central venous line into Dr. Gaffney's uh, 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 basilic vein before he went into space. So they positioned that right above the right atrium. And everybody expected because of this fluid shift that central venous pressure would rise dramatically. And interestingly enough, absolutely exactly the opposite thing occurred. So if you look at the cursor here where we do, uh, they're in the suit room getting suited up, they get into the orbiter. So the space shuttle, the launch is obviously very, uh, it has a lot of changes in the body. So you can see the pressure goes up. And then at the end of launch, it takes about eight, nine minutes to actually get into weightlessness. But look what happens. You go from being very positive to all of a sudden below negative. So exactly the opposite occurred in the zero G or in the, in the weight, weightlessness environment. And this was a real eye-opener to people because all of a sudden, all their constructs about why these fluid shifts were happening had to be reconfined. So Dr. Bucky recently, I think this was just published last year, uh, started talking about, again, readdressing why does central venous pressure fall below supine levels in the environment of weightlessness? So if you think about a body laying, uh, when you're laying at sleep, all the gravity is pushing on your entire central venous system. So the blue would represent your inferior vena cava, your superior vena cava. Yet when you go into the so-called zero Gs or weightlessness, your, you, you unweight the tissues from the veins. And when you unweight, you actually change the fluid distribution. And this is part of why they think there's this significant relative drop. So instead of the weight of the tissue increasing the pressure within the venous system, all of a sudden you have the unweighting and that actually unweights all your main veins and has a relative drop in terms of your central venous pressure. They've also looked at, um, uh, putting a balloon into the esophagus and, and again, measuring pressures. And I, I really think this picture is incredibly educational. So when the balloon, when you're in an upright position versus a supine position in a 1G uh, environment, the balloon kind of gets squished because 
all the tissues falling back on it. And then representative NB, you can see again, the esophagus is relatively flat when you lay, but in a microgravity or weightlessness, you can see it all expands. So we can use this again to represent how all the tissues expand to some degree, which will have a relative decrease in, uh, in pressure. And as we think about this, how does this affect the lymphatic system, which is a very uh, fragile system and easily uh, compressed by overlying tissues? And then if you do a fluid shift, think about all that fluid that has moved into the head and neck. How does that alter the pressure within lymphatics and how does it impact lymphatic functionality, which is dependent upon lymphangion contractility. And again, these vessels are incredibly dense within the skin, but they're also very um, susceptible to alterations in function when there's too much fluid overload. We know this from our patients with lymphedema where they just can't move the fluid from proximal to distal. So Clearly, this is a gap in uh, spaceflight adaptive physiology. There's a lot of work that's been done, and you'll hear some more about this from some of our other speakers, but uh, working on and understanding lymphatic function in true weightlessness is a very difficult thing because the, the tools we have, you can't do lymph uh, lymphocentigraphy, you can't do a, a MR lymphocentigraphy. Ultrasound definitions have been used to look at uh, fluid shifts in jugular veins, et cetera. But how do you really look at um, uh, lymphatic function with the tools that we have currently? And of course, this is a huge gap in medical school. So when you have a, a gap in medical school, it's, it's obviously going to contribute even more to having uh, understanding of lymphatic function in these extreme environments. So we all know that uh, a lymphangion is defined as valve to valve within a lymphatic vessel. The lymphatic vessels are lined with endothelial cells. They're lined with an endothelial glycocalyx. And then they've got significant contractility. So they're, they're robust in the ability to do that, but again, relatively fragile. And I've always thought it's interesting to look at uh, dynamics of flow. So if you look at the Saturn V rocket, and if you look at the flow pattern of the gases off the back, it actually really mimics what's going on within a lymphatic vessel. You can see that proportionally it's about the same where the lymphatic valve sets up and where that almost looks like a valve within the entrail of the Saturn V rocket. So clearly these mechanics are, are like biomimicry just at massively different scales. Actually, the, the phrase for looking at rocket exhaust plumes is phenomenology. And they, it creates what's called mock diamond. So if you look at the back of this engine where it's being tested, you can see where each one of these little valve, repeating valves sets up was well, very much same in the lymphatic system. So I, I've always thought it's incredibly interesting how there's that kind of biomimicry at different scales. So the entirety of the vasculature is lined by the glycocalyx. And the glycocalyx is another thing that there's significant gaps, not only on, on earth, but clearly in space, there's been almost no mention of the endothelial glycocalyx function within space. It's going to have to be determined because this is obviously an incredibly important part of our, our um, uh, teleologic function. There's 3 trillion endothelial cells in the body. There's an average of 60,000 miles within the body of the entire arteries, veins, lymphatics down to the five micron level. And again, it's all lined by the endothelial glycocalyx. The, the mnemonic I use to remember how the ep uh, glycocalyx functions is EPIC, E-P-I-C. So the EPIC part is the endothelial cell function. This is what produces nitric oxide. It produces other cytokines. And it's what creates functionality within the vessel. 
So as there's micro shear or even oscillatory shear within the vessels, it shifts the glycocalyx so that mechanical transduction or moving force gets transmitted into the endothelial cell. That's what creates production of uh, nitric oxide and other cytokines and other like prostaglandins, all things that are critical to tissue function. The P is permeability. It acts like a Gore-Tex layer. This is the one that's really fascinating me because when we see these significant fluid shifts and there's more uh, fluid within the tissues, we know that permeability has been uh, impacted. So how is the glycocalyx being shifted or altered in low earth orbit? And is this contributing to this permeability and increased tissue components? The I is inflammation. We know there's a lot of inflammation within uh, the space environment. Um, in fact, they call it an inflammaging environment. Astronauts age at a, a more rapid function. Their endothelial cells become stiff. Um, and so we know that there's increased inflammation. So again, how does this link in with glycocalyx function and then coagulation? So when you strip the endothelial glycocalyx, you actually increase coagulation events. This is another recent study that was published in 2022. And I described the glycocalyx as like the Amazon forest. There's depths of the can canopy from top to bottom. Within each layer of the canopy live different types of uh, uh, components, but they're all structurally connected to be able to make the glycocalyx function. So some of the components are hyaluronic acid. We know that's a significant component to the uh, the permeability, albumin is a significant uh, component to um, uh, permeability. There's integrins, there's ICAM, VCAM, there's um, uh, chondroitin sulfate, dermatin sulfate. So all these components are very important. And then when they get shed, so venous hypertension, the fluid shift into the lower extremities with venous hypertension sheds the glycocalyx. This is one of the reasons that we see uh, white blood cells stick. This is one of the reasons we see uh, blood clots develop within the lower extremities related to the shedding of the glycocalyx within um, within veins. We also know that this can contribute to uh, artery health and development of atherosclerotic plaques as shedding of the glycocalyx. So one of the studies that was done as a, a spaceflight analog was looking at head tilt down and how does this contribute to optic disc edema development and uh, some really phenomenal NASA leaders have, have put this uh, test together, including Dr. Um, Scott Smith, Dr. Sarah Zwart. Um, and they were really the first ones to connect that there's a genetic component as well as potentially a B vitamin uh, component. So could B vitamins help mitigate these changes? And more of those studies are going on right now. But I think these kind of studies are, again, very important for us understanding how to treat wounds in the uh, lower extremity wounds in our patients with feeble lymphedema because could B vitamins become a, a really significant part of just simply how we treat our, our wound care patients. So to break this slide down very quickly, you can see that on the left-hand side is the back of the eyeball, so the retina, the choroid, the sclera. And what this is trying to show is that uh, when you're in low earth orbit, so on the International Space Station, the significant fluid shifts, the insulin resistance, resistance, the arterial stiffness. Again, we talked about endothelial cells actually become stiff. The radiation exposure and the increased carbon dioxide in the environment all combine together to change uh, MMP activation. So you have increased inflammation. This results in collagen turnover, elastin breakdown. And ultimately, this results in uncoupling of endothelial nitric oxide uh, synthetase at actually the endothelial cell level. So L-arginine can't be turned into nitric oxide as easy. 
this is a obviously a significant component of what we talked about with the endothelial glycocalyx. So then we get this fluid leakage that you see over on the right-hand side at the microvascular level. This is at a five micron level. And then if you look right above this, they're connecting it all to elevated levels of homocysteine. So homocysteine itself is not driving the endothelial cell damage. It's the changes in the single nucleotide polymorphisms that result in elevated homocysteine. That is the part that's contributing to uh, uh, the changes in the microvasculature. Well, we know that things like MTHFR and these types of polymorphisms can actually potentially be improved by giving the proper doses of B vitamins in the properly identified patients. So I think this model, we have to understand how to adapt actually into our wound clinics, because I think we could enhance wound clinic uh, outcomes and decrease recidivisms by understanding these exact same types of genetics. This is just a little bit more of a blown up uh, picture of that one to the right, again, showing uh, L-arginine. And we all talk about L-arginine in the wound clinic because we know that nitric oxide function helps our patients heal better. And as you improve nitric oxide production, you're also scavenging free oxygen radicals. So you're decreasing inflammation, two of the things that really slow down uh, wound healing. And then of course, we all want to decrease fluid leakage in our patients because that impacts venous disease, lymphatic disease, even the lymphedema of diabetic foot ulcerations. All of our diabetic foot ulceration patients have increased subcutaneous edema. Uh, and that obviously compromises microvascular perfusion. So helping to change these fluid shifts could really help improve our outcomes. I'll just briefly go over this event that occurred. It's the only deep venous thrombosis event that's occurred in low earth orbit. Um, Dr. Stephen Mole from the University of North Carolina was kind of the doctor on the ground that was helping to uh, uh, figure out how to treat this. So they were doing ultrasound evaluations of uh, uh, jugular veins, happened to notice that a jugular vein was fully thrombosed, quite a finding asymptomatic. And on the in the in the medicine kit of the International Space Station, they had anoxaparin. So started this particular astronaut not on anoxaparin, and then in a uh, shut a, 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 a resupply mission that occurred on day 43. So kind of in the middle, they actually then delivered up a pixaban. So then the astronaut was converted from anoxaparin once a daily to a pixaban twice daily. This was uh, continued until about uh, four days before the astronaut was then brought back to Earth with the rest of the crew uh, per the normal routine. And then when they did an ultrasound, right when the astronaut landed on the ground, the thrombus had actually been essentially mostly gone. There was a little bit of residual there. This particular astronaut went through a hypercoagulable workup, no known hypercoagulability. So still not quite sure why this whole event happened, but it was a, a really significant event that now has to be talked about, of course, for any long duration space flight. Um, 1996 paper, again, even back in 96, they were talking about how increased permeability of capillary membranes is one of the most important mechanisms causing spaceflight induced or plasma volume reduction. So again, when there's this significant fluid shift, it, it not only is causing shift into the tissues, but it's, it's causing a, re, um, uh, a reduction in plasma volume. And of course, long-term plasma volume reduction has a significant impact upon organ function. With these other fluid shifts, they're now recognizing that there's significant brain edema developing within astronauts. So Emma, this is an MRI that was performed six months after flight in an astronaut. And this, uh, and I'll just read this word for word here. What we identified that no one had really identified before is that there's a significant increase in the volume of the brain's white matter from 
pre-flight to post-flight and white matter expansion, in fact, is responsible for the largest increase in combined brain and cerebral fluid volumes. So this is all part of this space flight associated neuroocular syndrome component. So now they're identifying, not only do you have shifts uh, in your vision, changes in optic uh, nerve uh, edema, that's with the facial edema we're seeing, but it's actually impacting intracranial uh, tissues. And this was another follow-up study. Jeff Illiff, uh, who I outlined, actually helped with uh, Marta Niedegaard in, I think, 2011, identify what's called the G-lymphatic system, so kind of the flushing of the brain tissue component. So now we're starting to get in, how is the G-lymphatic system uh, combined with regular meningeal lymphatic system and venous function, arterial function, how is this all combined to impact this tissue edema development? So our key findings included that novice astronauts, so first-time flights exhibited increases in total um, uh, brain edema volume from pre to post-flight, whereas experienced astronauts did not. So astronauts that were First-time flyers had a significant expansion. Those that have already had the significant expansion with the first flights, they don't expand as much. But more importantly, the tissue edema is not going away. And I think understanding how is this going to affect long-term physiology in, these, in, in astronaut brains is going to be very important for following up long-term. This is then uh, Megan Niedergaard got involved with um, the Space Flight Associated Neur Neuroocular Syndrome uh, conversation. And this is a, a paper that she contributed with how is the G lymphatic component working? So the G lymphatic system is not only within the brain, it's actually within the, the uh, eye itself. So it's interesting to look at the flow patterns because in the flow patterns, the G lymphatic system is uh, backwards from the back of the eyeball into the optic nerve. And if you get significant uh, volume expansion or retinal uh, thickness, you actually will change the G lymphatic system of the, of the back of the eye as it's being changed in the brain. And you get kind of a, a section where it can't drain either way. And that's potentially then contributing to why you get the, the ocular edema. Very complex subject, but just to just remember that lymphatic and G lymphatic function clearly now has been identified to be playing a part in these fluid shifts within astronauts. So this is just kind of, to, again, to tie it all back together. So if we look at what's happening in the microvasculature that's been uh, proposed by Dr. Zwarton Smith in their papers, and then we look at uh, ground-based studies where we know that shear stress is one of the things that helps maintain endothelial cell health by producing nitric oxide. So in the figure on the left, as the red blood cells move across, it's that mechanical transduction or stimulation of the glycocalyx of the endothelial cells that's producing nitric oxide. When you unweight or change shear stress, that uncouples endothelial nitric oxide synthetase. So all of a sudden you're not producing nitric oxide, but you're also not scavenging free uh, radical oxygen species. So this is a double hit to the system when you lose mechanical transduction. And I think that this may be a part, not the entire part of it, but I think this may be a part of why you see these changes of fluid leakage, loss of nitric oxide, and it all goes back to what's happening with the endothelial glycocalyx when there's a change in shear stress, which would be related to weightlessness. 
So one of my favorite books is Human Adapt Adaptation to Spaceflight, the role of uh, food and nutrition, because clearly nutrition is going to be a significant part of mitigation of these. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jell Lindgren, who actually trained at Hennepin County Medical Center here in Minneapolis uh, in emergency room medication. This is one of his flights up on the space station. And I point this out with oranges and limes because uh, within these is diosmin and hesperidin. And we know that diosmin hesperidin as a micronized purified flavonoid fraction is one of the mainstays of uh, treatments uh, within uh, lymphatic dysfunction and venous dysfunction. There's very good graded literature on this and uh, can ultimately be vitamins, micronized py uh, purified flavonoid fractions. Can this help mitigate some of these changes of fluid shifts that astronauts are seeing in space? Clearly there needs to be a lot of work done on this. Um, but also, again, it translates back into how we can improve uh, patient care within our wound clinics by understanding this. And my, my last slide is just to talk about uh, uh, President Kennedy's remarks when he was in San Antonio, November 21st, 1963, dedicating a new uh, space uh, flight um, medicine uh, uh, to, to look at how we could translate findings in space down to earth. He said, medicine in space is going to make our lives healthier and happier here on earth. Medical space research may revolutionize the technology and techniques of modern medicine. And we're seeing that happen over the past 50 years, certainly since uh, uh, Skylab, and we're gonna see this continuing into the future. And medical space research may lead to new safeguards against hazards common to many environments. And I think one of the biggest areas is simply radiation. How do we help our patients going through chemotherapy and radiation therapy for cancer? How do we help decrease the, the uh, risk of uh, developing counter uh, effects of the radiation as patients are going through treatment? And with that, Megan, I'm going to turn it back over to you. And I so appreciate the opportunity to present today. And thank you for helping to put all this together. Thank you very much, Dr. Meenan, for such a comprehensive overview for our audience. Um, did you by any chance see that Japanese study that was published in Microgravity, which um, essentially discussed the predisposition of degenerative conditions um, developing such as Parkinson's, dementia, and other neurodegenerative conditions, and the fact that astronauts were uh, predisposed over that long-term period of developing these conditions much, much earlier than the general population. Um, and you touched upon it uh, in your segment that microgravity has such a wide range of long-term effects, you know, the skeletal um, mass loss, muscle mass loss, etc. cetera. And uh, essentially, um, it's really quite important for us to, to see these long, long-term effects that astronauts may actually be putting themselves at additional risk um, of these conditions. So uh, did you have a view on that? And I'll make one comment on what you just said, because you brought up an incredibly important point that actually translates back to our patients in the wound clinics. So they actually did a cosmonaut study to look at uh, beta amyloid 40 and 42. What happens with removal of that? We know the G lymphatic system empties those proteins that can really impact neuron function. So in these five cosmonauts, um, they measured baseline space, and then when they deorbited, and there was a significant dump of beta 40 and 42 when they returned to Earth. So when you're in, in space, you're basically sleeping supine the entire time. You're sleeping upright. Your G lymphatic function probably is not happening, so you're not clearing those proteins. That can lead to the, the neurodegeneration that the Japanese article was talking about. 
Uh, Don Kernigas just did a really fascinating uh, prolonged MRI study that shows changes in um, MRI-based G lymphatic function. So we're finding non-invasive ways to look at this over a long period of time. Now they're going to do that with a head-down tilt study. But where that translates to our patients is, and Caroline Fife, who actually has worked with NASA in the past on some stuff, taught us, uh, among other people, about the importance of asking our wound care patients, do you sleep in a bed or do you sleep in a chair? Many of our wound care patients sleep in a chair. So their head's up the entire time. Well, if you're sleeping with your head up and you're not sleeping supine, you're probably not kicking in your G lymphatic system. And I think this contributes to the brain fog that we see in a lot of our wound care patients. So emphasizing sleeping in a supine position, and many of our patients can't because of shortness of breath, cardiac, um, they have low back pain, but sleeping supine where your right atrium is even with your um, even or your right atrium is even with your jugular vein and your your leg veins, that's what helps kick off the G lymphatic system at night and also circadian rhythm function, which is markedly abnormal in astronauts as well as a lot of our wound care patients. They're up till three o'clock in the morning. They don't get up till noon. So I think all of that really changes how our patients are healing and contributes to the to the, this, this neurodegenerative component that you were very uh, spot on with bringing up. So welcome to Kelly Kedis Ogborn, who is joining us. She's a vice president of space commerce and entrepreneurship at Space Foundation. And she's going to bring her expertise uh, to this panel. We're really grateful for you joining this global panel, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. And um, as was mentioned, I am a space economy strategist and technology commercialization expert. And I spend a lot of time qualifying and quantifying where space is going and putting strategies in place for individuals, companies, and countries to grow and scale within these various markets. And so what I really look at is the totality of the ecosystem and what's relevant now and what is essential for growth and sustainment. And as a guiding principle, there really is no better time to become part of the global space ecosystem. While traditional sectors for space commerce have continued to grow, they are now being joined by new and innovative space companies and capabilities which continue to really increase the value of space assets for a wide variety of economic activities, scientific research and national security. And so what I like to think about is that the new space economy is going to be anchored by familiar segments, but really defined by these emerging markets. And as we think about creating a path of growth and sustainment, a large component that is a big required focus, um, as you can imagine, is people. As we unlock these technological capabilities and business opportunities in space and push for these lunar outposts and Mars colonies, we really must be able to keep humans healthy and support life. And so a quick framework of thinking before jumping into the discussion, um, which I really think will help us set the stage for why space and why now. So this is me, we already covered this. Um, what's really exciting about this moment in space is that it's really no longer just for wealthy nations and companies led by tech experts or space enthusiasts. And increasingly, disparate industries are now recognizing that the gap precluding everyday citizens from entering the global space ecosystem is getting smaller and smaller by the day. And what this has done is that it has created new channels for commerce to flow and for business to be done. And it is the pioneering home really 
for new products, services, and approaches that are redefining critical infrastructure while also creating new jobs and innovations that are benefiting more people than ever before. And in fact, the space economy today is 55% higher than just a decade ago, producing more um, entrepreneurial activity, but also the parameters of the global space ecosystem have expanded. They have diversified by players, investment, and funding interest. And in 2021, we saw a record of $10 billion of private investment in space ventures. And over the past 15 years, the private sector funding has really diversified by orbit. Generally, we would see uh, investment in geostationary orbit and medium Earth orbit, but now we are starting to see it more trickle toward low Earth orbit and these suborbital ventures and lunar and deep space ventures, which is really going to be critical to the focus of this conversation when we talk about you know, human health and human sustainability. And so really this uh, lively economy has made room for people of diverse aptitudes and talents to really take their place within it. And as a guiding principle, I always like to say, you know, space really has no shortage of strategic vision. We are really only limited by our creativity in how we take advantage of the opportunity and know how to create these tangible and practical roadmaps toward growth and sustainability of these markets. So a quick discussion overview that I will touch on, um, I'm gonna talk about what the current global space economy is, why we are in this era that we are in, um, looking at moving from Apollo into Artemis, briefly talk about emerging market segmentation and then move into space adjacency and the global space ecosystem. So starting with the current global space economy, right now it's projected that it's going to reach about 1 trillion by 2040. And while that may seem like a lot, we are almost halfway there. The Space Foundation puts out a uh, space economy number every year. Our new one is going to be released next month, so stay tuned. But um, in 2022, it was clocked at $469 billion, which is made up of both um, global government spending and budgets and also commercial revenue. 23% of that is uh, global government budgets and 77% of that is commercial revenue. There was a 9% growth from the year before in 2021. And currently there are 77 global government space agencies operating and 90 countries that are engaging with space. And really what you wanna focus on are two main markets, which are really the catalyst and the drivers for a lot of this activity. And these are the space to earth market. So these are goods and services produced in space for use on earth. Um, this is everything from telecommunications, broadband, you know, data apps, our cell phone alone utilizes space-based data and technology on a regular basis. Um, so this is a huge, huge sustaining market. And the next is the space to space market, which are goods and services produced in space for use in space. This one is more future oriented and exploratory. So this is looking at the moon, asteroid mining, launch capabilities to maneuver from one orbit to another, the construction of space habitats, refueling depots, et cetera. And what's interesting is that this market is really the one that catches a lot of headlines and investment. This is what gets people really excited. But this market is also in its infancy to get off the ground because there are still a lot of significant technological achievements that need to be accomplished before this sector can truly thrive. 
Um, and this market is really the one that is pushing the boundaries of limits of what is possible, which is very exciting. Um, and so I have no doubts that it will continue to catch up with where we are now. The space to earth market though, is a lot more quantifiable because currently it is responsible for about 95% of the current space economy. But what I find the most interesting to the points of this conversation is that the environments and conditions of space are also uniquely suited to manufacture and research applications that are totally out of reach on Earth. For example, it is possible to manufacture medical devices of the size and size rather and sophistication necessary to implant on the retina, or um, it can advance osteoporosis treatments to help prevent muscle and bone atrophy, and it can also help expedite FDA approval of them. And so one consideration for the healthcare industry is not only how we can contribute to the future of space exploration, but also thinking about how space can serve us on Earth now and how we can potentially exploit these conditions to expedite research, expedite manufacturing, and expedite procedures and processes that we are currently using that are, that are dire, right, to, to sustaining life. So looking at... Um, where we are within this moment of space and also why this is such a good time to become part of it. And really it comes down to moving out of this Apollo era and now moving into this era of Artemis. So we are all familiar you know, with the moon landing and that was a byproduct of the Apollo program that NASA ran between 1961 and 1972, where they flew 17 missions. And it was on Apollo 11, the 11th mission that we landed on the moon. What's interesting of note here is that at this time, humans engaged with space as a means of exploration and national security that was really spearheaded by the wealthiest nation states. At that time, space was a strategic proxy and identity marker of nation states and technological progression and human exploration was really a second order impact. That is no longer the case with our renewed moon mission, and we are now moving into the Artemis program, which started in you know 2017, and we just conducted our maiden flight on November 16th last year of the um, you know first successful test flight. And so, what the Artemis mission does is it seeks to drive forward the next chapter of human space exploration with the goal once again of landing on the moon in hopefully 2024 and then expanding to Mars from there. And in order to achieve this, it will require an effort that encompasses the totality of the space ecosystem and new backgrounds and skill sets are going to be necessary to grow and sustain efforts in cislunar and beyond. And so it also highlights the nature of today's ecosystem, one that is both collaborative and competitive because national priorities are deeply intertwined with commercial endeavors. And as we push for our collective wish of the future, it really is going to have to encompass commerce activities in Leo Mio Geo, Cislunar and beyond, and really all industries that help sustain that and grow that. What's also really interesting about the era of Artemis is that it will unlock interest, investment, and opportunity for a whole host of adjacent industries to insert themselves into the global supply chain, which I will get into next. So looking quickly on this idea of emerging market segmentation, and I really like this chart that NASA put forward about their future of exploration. 
And what this is meant to highlight is where we are going and then technologically what is going to be necessary to unlock commerce and opportunity and business within these areas. So in terms of low Earth orbit, um, it really comes down to the rocket equation of launch and re-entry. But what I find um, most interesting about this is that this is going to happen pretty, pretty rapidly. Um, we have a pretty good development timeline on these rocket aspects. And so once this becomes a reality and these commercial space stations are online, um, we're going to start to see a lot of activity and a lot of this, as I like to say, like peeling back the onion of a lot of these other capabilities and technologies that are going to be coming about. What I really want to focus on for the portion of this is really looking at um, medium Earth orbit, uh, geosynchronous orbit, and then also Moon, Mars, and beyond. So in order for MEO and GEO to really unlock market potential, what we're looking at is untethering missions from the Earth's surface. So being able to sustain activities, sustain technologies, and sustain life um, within these orbits, on these space stations, as well as um, looking at like lunar outposts and other things. And then that moves to Moon, Mars, and beyond. By that point, technologically, we will be pretty clear on where we're going um, and what we have to achieve. But in order to actually unlock that market potential and sustain, it's going to require these long-term human life support systems. So the health, the longevity, um, the habitat, sort of anything of that nature to keep people able to thrive, able to grow, and able to expand in these missions. Next, we're going to talk quickly about the concept of space adjacency and the global space ecosystem starting with the 10 drivers of the new space economy put forward by Morgan Stanley. Um, I'm only gonna touch for the sake of this conversation on one, one per slide that I think are the most relevant, but one thing of note to the audience is to really look at the variation between and amongst these drivers, because I think they are notable not only for their focus, but also for their cutting edge positioning. And for the sake of this talk, um, on this slide, I'm going to focus on deep space exploration, which is looking at high-level missions to transport humans and cargo beyond Earth's atmosphere to the moon, Mars, and beyond. And when you think about this, and you can really think about all of them, um, what's really important is to think about the downstream capabilities and the technologies necessary to execute, grow, and sustain each. And so when you begin to view each as a complex web of industries, you really start to realize how space touches everything. So for the concept of deep space exploration, again, beyond the technologies necessary to do that, we need to start looking at um, and studying the effects of gravity on the body. We need to look at wound care. We need to look at illness. We need to figure out agricultural, um, agricultural growth procedures. We need food engineers. Creature comforts is also another big one. You know, we talk a lot about the physiological aspects of sustaining life and keeping people healthy. Mental is just as important. When we are asking these astronauts to really give up their families, you know, give up gravity, give up all the comforts on Earth for these missions, we need to make sure that we keep them sane, we make them feel connected. Um, everything of that nature is just as critical. This is also looking at things like environmental assessment. So being able to test the air, test the ground uh, to make sure that it's habitable, but then on the flip side, also being able to understand how those environmental aspects are affecting people. 
On the next slide, the one that I'm going to touch about is space tourism. So this is looking at access to space for private citizens or space adventure programs. The reason that this one is really critical is that it's also probably the most exciting and what people think about often. Uh, space tourism can be everything from going to these commercial space stations, which we talked about, but it's also looking at a lot of these um, suborbital flights that are happening now with Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, um, as well as SpaceX, but then also looking at lunar outposts. And so beyond launch companies being critical to sustain this, we also are going to look at the hospitality industry, uh, the medical industry, you know, how do people um, have children in these colonies? I don't think right now it's been postured that people can reproduce in space, but we're going to have to. Um, how do you operate? This is going to then look at, you know, robotic assembly, robotic surgeries. So it's going to really require the creativity of a lot of different industries to sustain this from a human aspect as space becomes a lot more accessible to more people. And then lastly in the presentation, I just wanted to quickly touch upon technology trends to watch in space. A lot of these are self-explanatory, um, and I'm only going to touch on a few again for the sake of time, but in particular, biometrics and health. So we do currently have a lot of data that's been collected on astronauts on the International Space Station, but I think that the future of space and how humans will be engaging in space open up a really interesting opportunity to collect data in the future. So on suborbital flights, you know, even spending 16 minutes on a rocket being above the Kármán line for five to six, how does that affect your body? How does that affect inflammation? There's a lot of research that we can be doing um, and then to better prepare future astronauts for these longer duration missions. Uh, the fourth one on here as well that I'll point out is um, number four, creature comforts and in space and lunar habitats. So again, um, the design, the mental aspect, um, keeping people safe from the environment, that's a really, really critical one that's heating up. And then on this slide, um, the two that I want to touch upon is robotics and artificial intelligence. I did mention this a bit briefly in the presentation, but robotics in terms of robotic surgeries, um, you know, if there's some sort of human machine symbiosis that is going to allow people to thrive better in space. And then artificial intelligence is a really, really critical one um, for, for medical trainings, right? And robotic surgery is definitely, you can use artificial intelligence, but also from that mental health creature comfort side, that's going to be really, really critical to pe keep people feeling connected um, during these flights and in these habitats. I know I covered a lot of information in that time. Um, this is my information if you'd like to get in touch. And um, I thank you for the discussion and I look forward to questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly. That was really a fantastic presentation, um, you know, for us in the audience that may not, you know, be exposed to kind of space and, and the future. Um, can I start by asking just a question about when do you think that, that sort of that whole venture became commercial so in terms of era wise looking back obviously to the 50s 60s 70s obviously it was very much focused on the battle for space and who was going to get there first and and now it's converted to something almost unrecognizable from what your presentation is showing so when do you think that switch flicked into the commercial aspect so that's a great question i think what's interesting about that aspect is Commercial companies have always been a part of the space program. 
Um, what, what's interesting in terms of the distinction is that if you think about um, NASA programs and kind of our Apollo missions, it was commercial companies that were actually building building these these uh, spacecraft. It's just it wasn't necessarily known which company was doing it because it was vertically integrated. Um, so space has become slowly commercial in different ways. Um, we actually have a lot of space spinoffs. So investment in space on different technologies that have been spun off in commercial endeavors. Uh, different examples is memory foam mattresses. Um, baby food is actually another one. Clear braces. Uh, the reason why your, your picture switches when you uh, turn your phone, that was another space technology. So commercialization has always existed. Um, I think where the shift has been has been people realizing that it's beyond larger companies and national security endeavors, I think is the best way. Um, so as we have had more connectivity in space, as we have had more data in space, there have been a lot more commercial companies understanding how to exploit it or utilize it for their benefits. Um, and then it has continued to snowball. I think the biggest boom right now and why commercialization seems to be more rampant is because of these opportunities that are going to open up in low earth orbit and that really comes down to the rocket equation so we have a lot to thank for to spacex quite honestly for being able to prove that they can create you know cheaper rockets that launch at a better cadence and can um, offer cheaper prices and rides to space once now space becomes more accessible for everyday people not just for trips but for also for payloads and different projects they want to put in. I think the imagination and the opportunity has started to snowball for people to realizing that there is a place for them and that they can actually engage in activity. Thank you, Kelly. And Kelly, what do you think the biggest challenges facing, facing you would be as, a, as an organization in the next sort of 10 years? Us personally? Yes. So the nice thing about Space Foundation is we are, we're a nonprofit organization. And so we do a lot of um, advocating, education, educating, and really um, inspiring kind of next generation space experts. And so for us, um, we get to grow as the ecosystem and the industry grows. And so that's, that's a wonderful place to be because we can provide support and resources and thought leadership across the totality of the ecosystem and industry um, and really shift as it shifts. I think as an, as an overall ecosystem, what I think it's going to look like though in the next 10 years is we are going to see a complete rush of new companies and new entities that are not necessarily on the playing ground now. What I have noticed is that there are a lot of these really agile, interesting ideas that are sort of waiting in the wing for their insertion point. And so while space is still dominated, as I mentioned in the beginning, by these traditional verticals that we think of, um, once the rocket equation is, is solved, as I mentioned a bit earlier, and these commercial space stations come online, I just think we are going to see a cascade of new technologies, capabilities, and ways of doing things that we might not even be able to, um, to posture yet. And so that that's what's most exciting for me is to be able 10 years from now, look back and be like, oh, <laughs> that should have been on the radar, but it but it necessarily wasn't because we're talking about things now in terms of like 
in orbit refueling. So there are some companies that are focused on quote unquote like gas stations in space, for example, um, in orbit servicing and manufacturing. So being able to completely conduct robotic experiments. And I mentioned artificial intelligence and the conditions of space are just gonna open up a lot of opportunity for a lot of new people to take advantage of it. And how do you think that International Space Station with all the sort of health measurements and all the investigations they're carrying out in terms of the current status what what's your opinion on how that how that's working uh how they currently conduct yeah so i think they've done a phenomenal job i mean the iss is is the iss right it's been around uh for decades and generations and i think it was really smart on nasa's part to pass the torch right in a lot of ways because with a lot of these commercial space stations it's not going to hinder any of the research and and anything really their operations that they're doing they're just now um, freeing up time for them to focus more on the the long-term exploration these lunar outposts and you know these mars colonies and a lot of the activities they are looking for in the future and so from my perspective i think it was a really smart business move um and from a commercial aspect as i mentioned i think it is going to be really interesting because you can now have citizen astronauts going to these commercial space stations to do very different research projects that might not be government funded but could have a completely different impact and so beyond you know these health measures you're also going to have to consider potentially new spacesuit design for people that might not like i said meet the rigorous standards that nasa astronauts meet um or that are just going to be there maybe for for a week for two weeks it just is a it, it opens up a lot more questions than answers, which I don't think is a bad thing because it's forcing a lot of industries to realize how they should adopt their their ecosystems and principles and, and ways of doing things. Thanks very much, Kelly. And how do you think uh, countries are working together currently in terms of this commercialization in space? What's your view on that? So I actually think that it's a very collaborative environment. Um, what's wonderful about space and just the human exploration of it right like no one is going to look at the sky or think about space and say that it isn't it isn't cool and it isn't inspiring and and um so as an industry we don't we don't suffer from an optics problem which is wonderful um i think that now especially with the spirit of artemis and it going to the moon not just for national you know um dominance but more for this research kind of humanity aspect it is really shifting minds to think about it more in a collaborative environment and that also trickles down to the commercial aspect what i've seen there too is there is a lot of collaboration because while people kind of operate in these silos they're realizing that um cross-pollination and, and cross-integration will get us there faster and i really do think that we have to work together in order to achieve our collective wish it can still be competitive and it needs to be competitive to have sort of any sort of, you know, commerce and, and business environment, but it is really critical um, for the collaboration piece, especially so we can use the best and the brightest of different entities to be able to get there faster. Now we're going to find out how the skin changes during space flight from Dr. Rowena Christensen. Greetings, everyone. I'm very glad to be with you today to talk about some of the skin microbiome changes during space flight. This presentation is divided into a number of short sections looking at the skin and microbiome, the interaction with the environment and stressors, changes that occur in spaceflight, some research studies, 
pathogen changes as well, the relationship between microbiome changes and skin responses, some summary points and some potential countermeasures. The skin is the largest organ in the human body. It forms a protective barrier against the external environment and pathogens. However, this barrier function can be disrupted, which is potentially problematic. But this function is essential for internal homeostasis or physiological balance. The skin's divided up into several layers from the outside to the inside. It forms a neuroendocrine system and also contains diverse microbial communities that form the skin microbiota. But if these are disrupted, it can potentially result in skin diseases. There is a diverse microbial ecosystem in the human body, including bacteria, virus, fungi, and protozoa. These are distributed differently, and they all have their site-specific preferences and unique microbial fingerprints. There's a significant interaction between human skin-associated microorganisms and the local environment in closed systems such as spacecraft. The microbiome changes during spaceflight, which may lead to skin infections or flare-up of skin diseases. And that balance among skin microbial communities is really important. And if this is disrupted by microorganism or host factors, this results in dysbiosis and this can then lead to pathology. The International Space Station is a closed system and life support systems are in place to maintain conditions for humans to survive and also work productively and safely. There are a number of stresses, which are both environmental stresses and social stresses, and these can all contribute to the composition of the microbiomes and have a negative impact on astronaut health and induce skin changes. There's also isolation from expert medical care. Water supplies are very limited, so hygiene practices are different. For instance, you can't take a bath or a shower. You have to use wet wipes and wash your hair with a rinseless shampoo. There's no washing machines, so astronauts can't change their clothes as often as they do on Earth. So these factors, along with temperature changes, microgravity, radiation, and so on, do affect skin health and lead to frequent skin impairments and skin diseases. Very wide range of health issues have been reported by astronauts. But interestingly, dermatological complaints are among the most commonly reported medical events. And these can profoundly impact astronaut health, well-being and comfort. There's a well-established dysregulation of the immune system in space. It just doesn't work as well as it does on Earth. And that's been associated with reactivation of viruses and also a persistent skin rash in one particular astronaut. And just spaceflight itself has the potential to severely disrupt the skin microbiome. So although in one sense this might seem a trivial issue, it's also something that's important to be taken into account when planning a spaceflight. A very wide range of skin issues have been reported as well as skin damage and more chronic type skin diseases. 
also interactions with spacesuits, gloves, boots, celestial dust and lunar soil can result in skin problems and infection. And a lot of this is thought to be related to the environment, including the limited skin hygiene, environmental conditions and shifts in skin microbiota. There have been skin physiological changes noted relating to collagen production, epidermal thinning and a loss of elasticity. However, the research outcomes have been mixed and later research has contradicted some earlier research findings. In addition, skin thickness, barrier function and hydration differed depending on body location as well as age and gender. And a further complicating factor is that the headward fluid shift that occurs in microgravity can have an impact on skin measurements. And there was one study which looked at hair follicles and that suggested that spaceflight inhibits cell proliferation in hair follicles. Section B of figure one looks at some of the changes that occur in skin during spaceflight including increased sensitivity and epidermal thinning. And table one is a detailed listing of the skin associated clinical symptoms and medical conditions. And you can see for that, that there's a very wide range of things which can occur and have been reported in space. If you have optimal skin microbiome health, then that contributes to the skin barrier working well along with skin immune function and healing. However, if there's dysbiosis, then you'll likely to have changes in pH, changes to dermal immune function and the possibility of chronic skin conditions. And in spaceflight, there are multifactorial challenges to skin health and to the skin microbiome. And all of those, when you combine them together with the potential increased virulence of viruses and bacteria has overall implications for skin health and astronaut well-being. There is existing terrestrial evidence to suggest that many health problems suffered by astronauts can be caused or exacerbated by microbiome dysfunction. There was a research study which went over 33 months looking at the microbiome on the ISS and astronauts in the ISS. And this observed alterations in the skin microbiome that might contribute to the high frequency of skin rashes and hypersensitivity experienced by astronauts in space. There's good evidence to show that there's a rapid exchange of pathogens between human beings and the environments that they're in. And the ISS is a closed environment. It has its own microbial community, receives cargo shipments which have a low microbial load, and of course astronauts who have a comparatively high microbial load. And the Voorhees study looked at the microbiota of six ISS services and how they compared to the microbiomes of the crew. And there was quite a bit of overlap, but the ISS microbiome did change significantly over time. The research showed that 
although there were significant changes over time, some bacteria were there all the time, and that the correlation between the ISS samples and the astronaut samples tended to converge over time. Something else that they noted was that the response of the skin microbiota was very individualized with going up in some and down on others in terms of diversity. The study also showed that a very wide range of bacteria and fungi play a role on the International Space Station and it is of concern that some of these do show some antibiotic resistance. Two other studies of interest have shown that there is an association between being in the natural environment and the abundance of skin proteobacteria, which do seem to have a protective effect as far as the skin is concerned. And also that astronauts can inadvertently bring in environmental fungi. So this is certainly something to keep an eye out for and is also something which will need to be vigorously monitored for in off-world environments. The Voorhees research study showed that there were some microbes which had decreased abundance in space, some which had increased abundance, and that there were changes from pre-flight to in-flight and also post-flight. The changes in the skin microbiome are likely to be multifactorial, However, it does appear that the reduction in proteobacteria can be linked to the high frequency of skin hypersensitivity reactions, rashes, skin infections, inflammation and allergy sensitization. And it's also thought that the change in skin structure might facilitate the establishment of opportunistic skin infections, for instance, by staphylococcal and streptococcal species. An increase in the Malassia fungal species does seem to be linked with poorer hygiene and it's also linked to dermatitis. So this could be an explanation for why astronauts might experience more dermatitis type symptoms. Also a suggestion that changes in bacterial skin communities could be linked to the use of certain synthetic garments on the ISS. The key points to come out of the studies do seem to be that variability in the skin microbiome does tend to decrease in space and that living conditions and skin hygiene are different in space and that this can affect how the skin reacts and the likelihood of developing skin hypersensitivity reactions and infections and that there is an ongoing exchange of microorganisms between astronauts and the confined environment. Some further take-home points are that it's important to understand the skin microbiota changes that occur in spaceflight to maintain the balance of skin microbiota and to do more research about what's likely to happen to skin with very long duration space missions. In terms of countermeasures, it's important to note that optimal skin health occurs within a range of pH values and having the right sort of pH helps to stabilize the human microbiome ecosystem and in turn the microbiome is greatly affected by pH and changes in pH 
and common pathogenic bacteria have their own preferences for optimal growth at a particular pH level. An acidic pH is important for microbiome health and in higher or more alkaline pH, the microflora will change its composition and allow certain bacterial and viral species to become more virulent. It's thought that there would be multiple benefits of maintaining a lower skin pH in microgravity, including maintaining skin barrier, reducing dryness, reducing infection risk, slowing disease development, and increasing immune responses and wound healing capabilities. This could be as simple as using slightly acidic wipes for washing, maybe three times a week. The key takeaway point is that improving and maintaining skin microbiome quality will reduce the risk of skin dysbiosis and infections during long duration spaceflight. And management principles should include correcting pH, balanced level of fatty acids and avoiding substances that damage or disrupt the microbiome. Elderly skin tends to suffer from many of the same complaints as astronauts during spaceflight and treatment here also suggests appropriate lowering of pH in skincare products. However, there are challenges for medications and treatments during spaceflight, including manufacturing, medication stability and storage. Some other suggestions for optimizing healthcare in space include best practice body cleaning methods using moisturizers and addressing improper spacesuit glove and boot fit induced skin breakdown. The ventilation system needs to be able to deal with all the little skin particles which are floating around in the air. And on a more serious note, Immunodysregulation does mean that astronauts are more susceptible to infection, so you have to look at the preventive side of that, including vaccination and screening astronauts for Staph aureus, both antibiotic susceptible and antibiotic resistant varieties and decolonizing them as appropriate. And there's also recent research which suggests that colonizing people with staph epidermidis might selectively inhibit staph aureus colonization and biofilm formation so that could be an interesting countermeasure in itself thank you very much for your attention Thank you very much to you all for watching the last 60 minutes of this Wound Master series uh, on lessons from space for wound care. Uh, we're delighted you stay with us. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask them in the chat. Uh, don't forget to register. We'll put the link uh, so that you can have access to the Wound Master Class Academy, which gives you access to all our free events, all our free content in the journal. Um, and we hope to see you very soon for the next event. Good night.